Welcome to Put Your Heart Into It, the HBC podcast centered around educating providers and staff about common clinical scenarios so that we can better treat our patients. Podcasts on this account are meant for educational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical diagnoses or advice. If you have any clinical symptoms or medical questions, please consult a licensed healthcare provider. Let's get started on this month's podcast. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us with Heart and Vascular Care's podcast, Put Your Heart Into It. This week, we are joined by two female cardiologists, Dr. Pavani Kolakalapudi and Dr. Kathleen Evans. We're going to be talking about specific women cardiology concerns, early prevention, and a range of other topics. So, Dr. Kolakalapudi, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Thank you so much for um, saying my name perfectly, Cheyenne. I know that took some practice for you, so I appreciate that. (laughs) So I am a uh, non-invasive cardiologist. I've been in practice for the past five years in Northeast Georgia, and I'm super excited to join the team at Heart and Vascular Care. Good morning. Thank you for having me as well. Um, I'm also a non-invasive cardiologist with Heart and Vascular since late 2020. We are so excited um, to have Pavani with us. Um, She's going to be a great asset to have coming up soon. So thank you so much for doing this with us today. Kathleen, what kind of patients do you most enjoy seeing? What kind of trends have you seen when it comes to heart disease in women? Um, I have a lot of women come to me just um, being proactive, knowing that they come from a family with higher risk um, aspects as far as premature heart disease. Um, I think it's very not well known among patients um, what other risk factors might be, such as uh, prior obstetric complications and um, history of diabetes, polycystic ovarian disease, things like that. They just they just don't have the education to come straight to a cardiologist. So I think that the primary care providers have um, even a bigger role in these patients that have these risk factors, these women. Um, so paying attention to that and unfortunately taking the extra time to provide that education, um, I think is very much needed because um, yeah. women are are unfortunately higher uh, risk, especially as they get older, for having significant heart disease. And um, I think it, right now we need to work on prevention and education, most of all. Yeah, I, I think you you said it perfectly, Kathleen. I think you also hit um, the head on the nail. Absolutely. Certain obstetrical complications that young women don't even realize. I think you rightfully mentioned polycystic ovarian disease, as well as certain pregnancy-related complications that are specific to the heart or might not be actually specific to the heart, such as gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, hypertension during their pregnancy are all not on a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old's radar that this could at some point affect how their heart function is and how their vascular system can function down the line. And I think you also mentioned about prevention. I think recognition, understanding of these things and how these 
can lead to vascular complication should be on everyone's radar. And one of the reasons why we try to empower and educate primary care providers to recognize these, you know, make sure when you are seeing them in your clinic for the first time, ask these questions. Even the early age of menarche, I think, is also associated with vascular complications. Questions like, have you ever been pregnant? Did you ever have treated for high blood pressure during pregnancy? Did you ever be treated for hyperglycemia during your pregnancy? Um, and I think it's early menopause as well, defined as age less than 40, 45. Um, it's considered to be early menopause. And a lot of women sometimes can have surgical hysterectomy that in their 30s, which also now are going to be at high risk for having vascular complications. So I think getting a good background, a good history is so important from a primary care perspective. And making sure you're targeting these questions to identify their complications is so important in that first visit. Yes. And one thing that, I mean, even as a cardiologist, I was um, surprised to be reminded of anyways, that um, preterm delivery and low birth weight for gestational age is also considered a risk factor for, for women. Um, it's not something that it really kind of makes sense in our minds, but um, they have been shown to have um, at least a twofold increase in having um, premature heart disease or other cardiac risk fact, um, events. Um, so I think that's something, I mean, personally, I had to be reminded of that. So um, I think that would be something that needs to be asked as well. It's, I don't know that that's a, a common question to ask our patients is, did you have a preterm labor or how, I know. <laughs> how, how much did your baby weigh when it was born? So that's also something to be aware of. Yeah. Especially some of the older women I have in their sixties, you know, they're surprised as a cardiologist when I ask them about their, their obstetrical history there. And so it's just always kind of like, I'm not trying to dig into details, but these, things matter to how I'm going to treat you now or what kind of a vascular risk you are at this age. So I think it's so important that you get a history of the whole life cycle for a woman. Yes. And also um, uh, hormones, taking oral contraceptives that, that is so common for women now, even starting in their young teenage years to be taking um, birth control pills just to control um cramping or heavy bleeding or PMS symptoms, um, that can lead to some complications. And um, also the hormone replacement that a lot of women are getting um, either perimenopausal or postmenopausal or even premenopausal for like low testosterone, it, it does come with risk, especially if the women are smoking. So um, that needs to be added in our questions as well as the hormone replacement history. That's all great information. I'm kind of going off of this. Can you guys discuss some symptoms, you know, that are unique to women that they need to express to their um, physicians? And also, you know, we discuss so many different factors that require women to report to their cardiologist. Is there a general rule for when women should see a cardiologist, when that should, you know, is there an age, a uh, condition, or like a concern? I know it's different for every patient, but are there some any general rule of thumbs? 
Sure, I can speak to the question that you asked about symptoms, something I emphasize a lot in my practice, and I think Kathleen can start us off about when to actually come into a cardiologist. As far as symptoms are concerned, you know, women still have chest pain. I think it's kind of a misnomer that women have, oh, atypical chest pain or they have atypical symptoms. You know, you can't really distinguish whether or not a woman is having angina symptoms. I think that's all false. Um, women do have actually anginal chest pain. They do have shortness of breath on exertion, but they can also have related dizziness, abdominal symptoms, um, and just fatigue. But there's one interesting thing is that it's almost always with exertion. I used to be able to do, you know, two miles, but now I'm having shortness of breath when I'm doing 15 minutes into my daily exercise or, you know, I came back from my, in, from my run and I actually had abdominal pain and I had to, I had nausea and I actually vomited. It's that key to saying, is it exertional? What other risk factors do you have? Is it a smoker, a diabetic or somebody with hypertension? I think you have to put it together, but absolutely women can have chest pain on exertion, shortness of breath on exertion, or if they're having atypical symptoms such as dizziness, abdominal pain, nausea, with exertion, you have to kind of light up and kind of think about, oh, is this the anginal equivalent? Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to put in mind. It's also the, the type of woman. You know, if a woman's coming in who's a diabetic, she might not feel, you know, typical chest pain because of the neuropathy. But if she's saying to you, I'm fatigued, I am I'm short of breath with minimal activity, that's also a red flag. So keep, keep your mind broad in your differential and look at their risk factors before you decide, oh, it's just abdominal pain or, oh, the dizziness is probably something neuro. No, don't, don't dismiss them. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is that, you know, as women, we take care of everybody else before us. I think there's a really funny commercial from the AHA American website where it's, um, I think, Elizabeth Banks. She's having symptoms of angina, but she's still getting her kids ready for school and, you know, fixing their sandwiches. I thought that was so funny because that relates to all of our lives. We could be having significant symptoms, but we're not thinking about ourselves because we have X, Y, and Z to complete. So pause, take your time when you have a, a woman patient and really take a good history. Um, try to bring it out. You know, does it happen when you use a flight of stairs? Can be an easy way to gauge things. Um, are you trying to elicit um, that history? Yes, I agree with all of that. Um, I do emphasize that, especially the, the female diabetic patients, especially the ones that have gone uncontrolled and have neuropathy, I think um, mainly patients, but um, we do need to be aware that they may not have that chest pain because of the neuropathy. So I think that's important to emphasize the other symptoms and dizziness as well. I think that's important. Um, but when it comes to um, sending the patients over to us um, or how often the patients should be kind of um, monitored by a cardiologist, I would recommend that um, if there's any combination of risk factors, uh, whether it be um, the traditional premature 
coronary artery disease in the family and diabetes. Um, I would say with or without symptoms, I think it's worth at least doing a baseline EKG, maybe sending them for a coronary calcium score. Um, and if there's any question at all, any, any risk factors beyond maybe those two, go ahead and send them to us and let us um, figure out if there's anything else to be worried about. When I see these patients in my clinic, I, if there's any combination, especially the diabetics or the higher risk um, patients, um, premature coronary disease in their family, the other things that we uh, talked about previously as far as pregnancy-related um, issues like hypertension, preeclampsia, preterm delivery, any combination of these risk factors, I think that patients should have the baseline screening, such as um, the baseline EKG and coronary calcium score, but also um, be seen on a yearly basis for a yearly EKGs, because sometimes an EKG change may be the first thing that we see, and they're not either paying attention to their symptoms, don't realize that their symptoms might be cardiac related, but at least they'll have that extra backup and um, accountability to come into a doctor's office to have those questions thrown at them and an actual EKG checked on a yearly basis, along with, of course, the blood pressure, lipids, things like that, that we always check. Um, but I think that's important to have the giving, making them have the accountability to come in and get checked on a yearly basis with all these risk factors and maybe even every six months. So I'm curious, Kathleen, if a, a woman just comes into your clinic, I have a family history of heart disease. Um, what kind of a testing would you offer her versus somebody who's actually having symptoms of chest pain, shortness of breath, or dizziness? Um, I personally, um, of course, you take in the whole history, but if there's, um, I would just mainly do an EKG um, screen the risk factors. I would offer them the coronary calcium score because that's a considered a screening test in itself. They most patients want to do it, and in, in my experience, um, and if there's any findings based on those screenings, if of course if they have any symptoms, I'm going to go ahead and do a, a, a stress test um, that's appropriate. Younger patients, we usually have to do the the graded exercise test first before we do any imaging along with the stress test, but I think those would be the first things that I would look for. Yeah, and certainly also, besides getting the history, maybe doing a lipid panel, I, I know I don't think young patients are typically looked at that, so that's something that we would probably do as well, just a screening lipid panel. And I agree with you, I think if you are having symptoms, we would probably end up doing um, an exercise testing or some sort of provocative testing with an ultrasound echo if it matters or if it's um, consistent with that. Um, I think the only two other things that we forgot to mention, um, cardio-oncology uh, is a, another big field that I think is so important for women. Um, you know, every time breast cancer month comes up, October, everything is pink, pink, pink. But the sad statistic about that is that women actually survive their cancer, I mean, it's breast cancer, but they can have long-term complications 
cardiac complications or vascular complications coming from the different modalities used to treat that cancer, whether that be cancer-specific medications, chemotherapy agents, or, you know, certain types of radiation. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I actually saw a patient yesterday that had breast cancer on the left side and had um, radiation therapy, and she's having this nonspecific chest pain, but she also has high lipids um, and kind of borderline blood pressure, um, but she completely denies having any exertional symptoms. So we've been kind of walking this line as far as how far do we want to dig to find something? Um, and she finally agreed that we, she wanted to, to look a little bit harder. Um, nuclear stress test was normal, but she keeps on having this chest pain. So we ended up doing a coronary CTA. I don't have findings on it yet, but I think being more aggressive in um, looking specifically at imaging of the coronary arteries with a coronary CTA, because that gives us more information than a, a calcium score. Calcium score just gives you the calcium burden. It doesn't give you the non-calcified plaque um, or any other things that a coronary calcium um, or coronary calcium or coronary CTA can give us. Um, and I'm not saying that coronary CTAs are perfect. A lot of times we find that they're not accurate, but sometimes they are. Um, but I mainly use those to see um, non-calcified plaque and to give them uh, more of a risk stratification is do you have plaque in your coronary arteries or not? And if you do, then maybe we should put you on a, a cholesterol medicine, a statin in particular, um, and aspirin to help reduce your risk of having a stroke or, or MI or um, stroke. Because I kind of relate to my patients a lot that if you have plaque in your coronary arteries or in your carotid arteries. If we have plaque somewhere in your arterial system, it's likely to be elsewhere as well. So um, I try to urge them to be more proactive and at least being on a lower dose statin to help prevent and decrease the risk of, of heart attack and strokes. I think that um, there's a really good review article too that I recently read that it actually depends on you know, with the chemotherapy agents or the radiation, you know, how close was it to the heart? You know, specifically, the left anterior descending is the most um, affected because just of the interior position and the aortic valve, you know, you have a lot of premature valvular disease in women who undergo radiation or chemotherapy agents for breast cancer. So again, just to keep in mind that history is so important when we go back to talking about getting a good history from your patient who's having the shortness of breath, you want to ask, hey, have you ever been diagnosed with cancer? Um, if so, do you remember the agents that were used? Do you remember having chest radiation at all? So I think it's so important. And also, I had a very interesting case of a woman who received radiation, she's in her 60s now, for uterine cancer many decades ago, but now has peripheral arterial disease from that because of stenosis and the blood um, vessels in her legs. So I think it's, again, get that good history of what all have they been treated for and what are the risk factors they've been exposed to. I think the same thing with autonomic disease. There's more and more evidence coming out that 
having chronic um, autoimmune disease like psoriasis or lupus puts a woman at higher risk for having vascular disease because of the chronic inflammation. So again, lots of risk enhancers that affect women more disproportionately than men that come with, um, that's not always on our radar. We don't always think about these things when we're talking about heart disease, but so important to put that in your periphery and ask those directed questions. Yes, I agree. I'm glad you brought up the autoimmune um, and inflammatory issues that we see. Um, unfortunately, they're becoming more common. Um, and um, something also that I've learned after with this um, COVID pandemic is that we've been seeing a lot more post-COVID autoimmune issues um, that I think maybe we should be more aware of, especially in our female patients coming in for post-COVID symptoms and maybe not brush them off as to, oh, it'll it'll get better with time, just gradually increase your activity. I think we need to be um, maybe a little bit more cognizant of the inflammatory, the post-inflammatory issues that we know COVID um, shows us um, with the elevated CRP and uh, D-dimer and risk of um, thrombosis. Um, so, COVID's throwing another um, aspect into, I think, the female um, or female or women um, higher risk of cardiovascular disease. I think that's something that we might see as studies come out in the future. Yeah. Do you guys think that we can talk about um, tips for female residents and medical students um, interested in cardiology and, you know, why we truly do need more women in this field? Sure. I think that um, I think it's good to have strong role models in leadership for women to look up to. And I think that the the work hours or the lifestyle is something that prevents more women from going into um, more procedural heavy fellowships like cardiology. But boy, is there such a need to have strong women in this field because. I think there is that gender bias is prevalent. Um, women just tend to be more expressive in their symptoms. And unfortunately, that they get labeled as having anxiety or anxious about their symptoms. I think that, again, we have to go back and remind ourselves that women are the care providers for their home. When they don't feel well, they do rightfully have anxiety about what's going on with them and how they can be there for the rest of the people in the family. So I don't think it's right to label them as anxiety. It takes a female physician to be aware of the background and how to make a woman feel comfortable coming to you uh, with these questions and, and these um, concerns that they have and not being dismissed or have this fear of, oh, am I gonna be taken seriously or is it just my anxiety? So. It just is so important to have that person who looks like you, who talks like you, who's been through maybe pregnancy like you, to explain to you how you're feeling now, explain to you what your symptoms are. Um, so I just I think that we need more female 
cardiologists to embrace this field and because you can truly make a difference in your patient population. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another cardiology-focused episode.